at dawn. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman, and for the second week in the row, I'm going to be on the side of the Brontes. Amazing. I am your other host, Lauren Burke, and uh, for the second week in a row, I'm going to be Team Austin. It feels weird. Feels weird, guys. How, how does the bonnet fit, Lauren? Not well. My head is really big. Yeah, you need that Victorian bonnet. I do. You? I need the upgrade. It's roomy, metaphorical Victorian bonnet. I need it. An upgrade? <laughs> Hello. Excuse me? Rude. I'm rude. That is rude. Just like Emily Bronte. Regency bonnet. Oh my goodness. What are we going to be talking about today, Hannah? Well, this week is Jane Eyre week. Oh it's finally here. The moment we have been like counting down to trying to record multiple times, but you know, damn schedules and time difference and we're can't all... find my microphone. <laughs> we're all over the place. <laughs> we got it together. <laughs> we got it together. Our listeners don't know. Like, you know, we have a backlog of episodes that are posting and they don't know the struggle of us trying to record together. It's crazy. It is nuts. Because I'm always trying to hang out with my friends. Lauren's like, doesn't have a social life. So she just like hounds me. She just emails me all the time. Like admin. I'm a monster. Um, Sorry, podcast mom. I'm out with my friends. (laughs) Well, to be fair, we should actually tell the listeners a little bit about what we're doing. Um, Because we also are involved in two other book projects each. So you've got two books you're kind of working on. I've got two books that I'm working on. Uh, We also have this podcast and um, like sometimes a social life. Sometimes. Yeah, I'm doing like a master's and editing team. That's true. I completely forgot about your master's degree. (laughs) Yeah, I'm working towards a master's in transnational writing. And if you want to know what that means, uh, look it up on the uh, Budspa website. Sorry, go to you. Oh, excellent, <laughs> perfect. Um, and then what we both have like uh, part-time jobs as well. Oh, mine's definitely a full-time job. Oh God, um, it's like between more hours than part-time, but not. Well, sometimes I do like thirty hours a week. That's yeah. a full-time job. Yeah, that is. My God. But then there's other weeks where I do like three hours because I've booked all of my days off. Yeah. So we, we got a lot of stuff going on. Um, it's crazy, crazy town over here. But thankfully, thankfully, um, I have some time off and I am getting on a plane on Wednesday. I'm doing a little dance. It's terrible. Well, by dance. the time you listen to this, this will be this will be old news. You'll have seen it on the Instagram. You will. You will. We will be actually um, in London at this point. Um, but yeah, I'm super excited. I'm going over to Bristol to see Hannah. We're going to take the show on the road, which meaning, meaning we're going to do a little like quick and dirty audio recording. So, um, we're going to record a bit in Bristol. We're going to record a bit in Bath. We're going to record a bit in London. We're going to record a bit in Yorkshire. Yeah. Is Howarth in Yorkshire? It is. Yorkshire. We're going to the Parsonage. We're going to the Jane Austen Center. Um, we're actually teaming up with Britain's most haunted. No, we're not. Imagine, <laughs> imagine. Oh, I would love to go and do Britain's most haunted at the parsonage and say, 
Charlotte Bronze three times, or is it Emily Bronze? Which it's is Charlotte? The it's Charlotte's the one all... that we suspect is is haunting. The I reckon place. Charlotte's still there in the gift shop well, behind the postcard. We're gonna find her if she's there. Actually, you know what? I had this thought the other day. You're gonna hate this idea. Okay, I'm gonna. I'm going to get a good look at your face for when I like say this out loud. Okay. No. <laughs> I think we should bring a Ouija board to the parsonage. Oh yeah, we should do it. Oh really? <laughs> I hope you have like smelling salts though. Cause I'm going to faint. <laughs> I'm going to be sick in a bucket. Oh, uh, let's I'm gonna do it. I'm going to take a clean change of pants with me. Cause I'm gonna <laughs> I don't know. Let's do uh, it. I think it'll be exciting. We can like make our own too, right? I'm just trying um, to think of how much, uh, how much like, room I have in my luggage. The chills, just thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We're going to do it. We're going to just like find a corner of the parsonage and just sort of like see, see who comes through. It'll just be Branwell. And we'll Branwell. be like, get out of here. Get, we'll, be like, we do, we'll be like, we do not want to talk to you, Branwell. Get out of here. Like trying to push his pompadour like, back into the mirror. Like, go away. <laughs> Get out. We're only interested in your sisters. You got your movie, Branwell. You got your movie. We watched it. We're fine. Good for you. We don't need to know any more information. Enough is enough. Exactly. Branwell so, didn't um, paint himself out of that picture. I painted him out of it. <laughs> I read an interesting theory the other day that um, either Emily or Charlotte actually painted him out. Good. And I was like, oh, intri- okay, I like it. I Good like for it. them. Emily, um, I reckon. Yeah, yeah. Although, you know, Charlotte's got a little mean streak, too. Charlotte's got a very mean streak. I like it. I like those ladies. All right. Let's talk about one of the best books speaking of all of time. Weird houses, speaking of weird houses where there's, like, spooky shit happening all the time. <laughs> let's talk about Jane Eyre. Let's do it okay um one of my favorite books i've come back to it many a time i haven't read it though for a while so um i'm really excited to hear you talk about it because you're fresh and this was your first time and what did you learn oh it was your second time so yeah so i did try and read jayna when i was at university and um i didn't like it i couldn't be bothered so i gave my copy to a charity shop after reading like three chapters terrible so read Middlemarch read that also had to try and read Tristan Shandy and I didn't didn't read that either oh yeah that's a whole other thing so what oh Jane Eyre what to say I don't know I've been I've actually been quite intimidated talking about Jane Eyre on the podcast I know it's funny you keep saying that and then I looked at your notes for the show and there's like 10 20 pages of notes there is so there's so many notes and um it's like a lecture it's like a book there's there is so much there is so much to say about this book and what happens in it and with with the Brontes I think the thing that I've been finding quite interesting is that with Jane Austen I can contextualize it Mm -hmm. and with the Brontes I've kind of been trying to not do that because I want it to be fresh and interesting when we talk about it on the show so that when you tell me facts, it's like, oh, cool. Like, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Rather than sitting on my own, like, Googling it or... Right. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I I had quite a strong reaction to Jane Eyre, I would say. I was... I think I started reading it when I was in the UK. 
and was still yeah. reading it when we got to America. Yeah. So while while we were both recording in Chicago, I was like reading it in the car. Um, I just couldn't I couldn't put it down. It was like I was reading it before I went to bed. I was reading it when I woke up in the morning. Mm-hmm. I think I don't I don't identify with Jaina, and I don't think that that is important. We. Yeah, she she has this very strong like moral inner compass, which I don't think I'm like more of a Catherine Morland, I guess. <laughs> like throwing back to last week, just like people tell me stuff and it's stupid. I'm like, okay, I'll believe this, fine. <laughs> but there is something there is something about it that just even though I had like issues with it and it is like problematic in some places, and mm. I don't know how I feel about Rochester. Yeah, like I love him, but also like he's so annoying. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah. What what's the story though? I should maybe I should say what happens in the book. Yeah, there's gonna be a few spoilers in this episode. Um, but yeah. I think what you're talking about right there is one of the reasons I love the Brontes so much is that yeah, I find the book problematic and I come back to it a lot and think about it and I think about it, issues and racism yeah. and class and it, it makes you really think about these things and um helps you like work out where your own moral compass is, I think. Um, and the fact that you can return to Jane Eyre. It, well, this, and it still this was feels good. Yeah. It was a return, but you only read three chapters. The first yeah, time. I stopped I stopped reading it uh, just when she got to load school. So okay. Jane, Jane Eyre is the story of, and it's, you know, like I'm going to compare it to Jane Austen like a bunch of times. So I'm so sorry. That's okay. That's what this podcast does. <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah. So I think the first thing, it's very similar to Mansfield Park at the beginning in that you've got um, two parents who went and had a kid. One of them was from a wealthy family. One of them wasn't. And uh, for whatever reason, the kid from the poorer family gets sent to live with aunts, like aunts and uncles and cousins. And they are all living together. And the difference between the ward the child that's been sent to live with them and the actual children in the house is made very apparent. So then you've got this little girl growing up in a state where she's not quite a servant, but she's also not quite a member of the family. Mm-hmm. So both books do that. The difference in Mansfield Park is that Fanny Price is there. Like the, almost the entire book is set there apart from, you know, she goes back to Portsmouth, where I'm from, by the way, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, to visit her family. But she grows up there until she's an adult. Jane Eyre gets sent away. There's this big incident. So she's having all of these fights with her cousins. And then there's this incident where she gets locked in this room, the red room, that everyone uh, just makes comments about, like, oh, it's haunted, because that's where her uncle, uh, Mr. Reed, was, like, laid to rest when he died. Mm-hmm. And does she goes in to see him, doesn't she, when she's a kid? Does she? I think so. like... There isn't a mystery about the room. It isn't like the room killed him or he was murdered in that room or anything like that. It's just like that's where his body was after he died. And people just kind of don't really go into it, even though, you know, like the furniture's old. Yeah. It's it's kind of just been left. You yeah. know, no one uses the room anymore. It's and kind she of gets the same with, uh, with Northanger Abbey. I think if you think about these big stately homes and these rooms where like, yeah, like a beloved member of the family was put to rest or an yeah, important so member just, of the family was put to rest. So you can just shut it up. And then it does become, you know, haunted, not in the traditional yeah. sense, but like the last, you know, yeah, it, it's haunted. 
And um, then it becomes sort of attractive, you know, because it's forbidden or it becomes like, you know, a place of terror like it is for Jane. Yeah. And her family after she like strikes her cousin, I think she hits him and uh, she gets locked in this room and she, you know, she's so upset. She's so scared. I don't, she, there's all of this stuff that's like implied, like haunting and spectres and ghostliness and fairies and, uh, I think one of like the point of Jane Eyre is that none of this stuff is actually happening. Like exactly. there isn't a ghost in the red room. It's, right. She works. She believes there is a ghost, and so she sees something that scares her, right. and then she faints. And she's right. very ill, isn't she? Yeah. Um, like, does she have a seizure? Um, is that, I think is that you can like. Happens? I think you can read it as such, but um, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think it's, it is again. Like it's it's going back to what we said in you know, Northanger Abbey is that that psychological terror versus gore. Yeah. It's just a psychological situation in my reading. Yeah. There is, a th- I, I actually think there is a little bit of gore in this, but not until later. Mm-hmm. Um, so she, uh, a doctor is sent for, which is, you know, it's a big deal for her. Like there's this person coming to see her, like she's sick, like someone's coming to listen. And she kind of just says to him, like, I'm, very unhappy this hot like I got locked up I didn't do anything wrong Mm -hmm. and he just turns around and was like come on the house is really nice like (laughs) so you want to stay it's a nice house and um she's like no I want to go and so he just says to them like you should send this kid to school this will probably happen again like she's not happy yeah and her mum is like her mum her aunt is livid you know, like they're all furious, probably because she said something to someone. Like she dared yeah, say to someone right. who's not in the family, I'm not happy here. I think they're horrible. Right. And so they do send her to school. They send her to Lowood Academy. And uh, right before she goes, the aunt says, her aunt Reed says to the guy that runs the school, she's like, oh, this kid's a liar. And the guy's like, oh, don't worry. Like, I'll make sure she has a really miserable time. <laughs> Like Jane, like hears them, like like that happens in front of her, and so she's mm-hmm. like, "Oh, cool. Well, this fresh start that I thought I was gonna have, not is not a real fresh start." Yeah. So she goes to this school, and it's you know, doesn't, she goes on her own, doesn't she? Mm-hmm. She just gets sent off, and one of the servants is quite nice to her, and she's like, "Oh, I just wish you were like a nicer child." She doesn't hate Jane; she just thinks that she's difficult. Yeah. Um. So. It's kind of like, that's that's quite sad when she leaves her because you kind of are like, oh, wait, this person did, like, does care for her, like, in their own way. Uh, she goes to the school. They wear, like, Dutch Dutch pockets on the aprons. Mm-hmm. Like, they're wearing weird outfits. They're, they're meant to be kind of puritanical. Like, it's a Christian school. Yeah. And, um, like, having your hair done nicely is, like, bad. It's sinful. Uh, so the clothes are very plain and... The Dutch pockets thing stuck in my head because I had to look up what a Dutch pocket is. And it's just a pocket on the outside oh, of okay. your clothes, like a little square with three sides sewn, I think. Oh, okay, okay. Maybe I've... Oh, I'm now worried that's wrong. But so that's what I think a Dutch pocket is. Mm-hmm. And it's miserable. There's not enough food. There's not enough fuel for the fires. So everyone's cold. The older kids pick on the younger kid because they're weaker. And so imagine like you've got, you've got one slice of bread and you're getting to eat maybe a third of it if you're lucky because older kids are going to take their share before you you can have it right and so those kids that grow up as the smallest kids having their food taken away when they become older start doing it to the younger kids so there's just this like really ingrained 
like everyone is miserable everything's horrible Mm -hmm. there's one nice teacher miss temple who treats jane like she's a human being Mm -hmm. she does make friends with this girl called helen and again she kind of gets given this opportunity to turn around um and say to helen like this is what was going on at me uh going on to me i can't talk going on with me at gateshead this house that she grew up in Mm -hmm. and then helen's like oh, you're holding on to your grudges? Like, stop holding on to your grudges so fast. <laughs> it's like, even she's like, the doctor's like, you live in this nice house. Helen's like, stop holding on to your grudges. They're really good friends. Unfortunately, there's a typhus outbreak. Yeah. And like, so this, this must have just been what it was like going to school because that happened to Jane Austen and Cassandra. There's no like a sickness that broke out and they got sent home right it happened to the bronzes right and they like i think um i think charlotte's really putting on her her experience going to schools it's like put your head down be good at your lessons you're not here to make friends like if you make a friend cool but like just do what the teachers say and study hard and they'll leave you alone yeah i absolutely do think she was digging into her own experiences there too like I, i i mean i know that she wrote jane Eyre after um the professor was rejected from publishers um, at this point. Anne and Emily were published authors. And, you know, that was that must have been really hard for Charlotte because she was the one that was really pushing publication. Like, we're going to be published authors. We're going to make money from this. And then, yeah. you know, to be rejected and then have her sisters, you know, get published. That had to be terribly hard. And then she goes back and she does Jane Eyre. And I'm, I think that she just goes back and she really digs into her own personal experience and, well, because and her and sister her died at school, didn't she? Yes. Yeah, so both both um, Elizabeth and um, Maria. Maria. So, so Helen yeah, is a stand-in, I think, for those yeah. for those girls. Helen, like, kind of is a little bit. She's not dismissive in the sense that she doesn't believe what Jane's saying. She's just saying like you shouldn't hold on to it. Like you can't yeah. live your life. And even that that's unfair because right before she leaves Gateshead. Jane is she's trying to make peace with her aunt that's like a recurring thing she can't just and actually I do like I do identify Jane in that way um I find it really hard to have an argument and then to not to not try and work it out Mm -hmm. or like I always want to like I don't know like give someone an opportunity for it to be okay again and Jane just does that throughout the entire book it's always like I'll give them one more chance I'll give them one more chance yeah um so it's kind of like an unfair thing just oh you're like really hung up on it it's like well I'm hung up on it because I'm really upset and it's like made me this person right but I did try and give my aunt the chance to be 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 cool Mm -hmm. I was gonna say um (laughs) Helen dies that happens uh spoiler she dies of the damps yeah she got the damps and Helen dying is the other time so Miss Temple is there. Miss Temple is like a really nice person and she like appreciates Jane as like this odd little kid that she is. Uh, she's very caring. She like does what she can um, to help the girls. And so like when the porridge is rancid, she orders like bread and butter for them, doesn't she? Mm-hmm. And like yeah. some extra fuel for the fire. So you've got, she's like the Miss Honey in Matilda, like yeah. someone who actually cares about the kids. And she says to Jane like, um, after the Mr. Brocklehurst, who runs the school, comes by and he like tells everyone that Jane's a liar, mm-hmm. like Miss uh, Aunt Reed says, and then Jane says to Miss Temple like that's not true, 
And Miss Temple says, well, tell me everything that's happened to you. And if I think you're not lying, like, I'll, I'll let everyone know that it's okay. And so she tells her the story. And then she has to go and, like, talk to Helen. Like, is Helen sick at that point? Like, Helen interrupts her? It's like, Jane is never allowed to just, like, tell her story and have someone listen to her. Yeah. In the entire book. <laughs> it's nuts. Like, everyone is just always interested in something else. Yeah, yeah. Um, I should say as well, Jane Eyre is not, it's almost an epistolary. It's almost an epistolary. Mm-hmm. I thought it was for a minute. But, so it's not written as a series of letters, but it is written to you directly as the person reading it. Mm-hmm which I'll talk about a bit more. Yeah. But so it's kind of like that whole Jane not being listened to. I read like a load of articles about this, um, like online. And also I think I read some of the thesis, mm-hmm. like their school homework. Um, like the whole point of the story of Jane Eyre is that Jane Eyre is finally putting everything down on paper, not yeah. being judged. And people, you know, you, the reader, you are this like, you're so important to her because you are the person that's letting her speak yeah. in a way that no one else in the book does. That's one of my favorite things about Jane Eyre. And that's what is so interesting about the Brontes is that they, how much they play with that in yeah, all of their work. But we, we'll talk about that more. Yeah. So she stays at, she stays at Lowood even after Helen dies, um, right up until she's about 18 years old. Mm-hmm. And she's top of the class. Everyone loves her. She actually becomes a teacher there herself when she's too old to stay there as a pupil. But then she gets this bad news because someone else has noticed that Miss Temple's a really nice person and they want to marry her. And it's a bit like in Emma where her governess kind of goes off to be a married woman. Yeah. And so Miss Temple goes off to be a married woman. And Jane knows, like, I could stay at Lowood, but it isn't going to be the same. And it's about time that I leave and try and sort myself out. Um, She doesn't even think about going back to Gateshead. She just advertises, she says... I'm going to be a governess. Let's see what happens. And this woman, Miss Fairfax, Mrs. Fairfax, writes to her and says, I've got this one kid at a place called uh, Thornfield Hall. Come and be a governess there. And like, it'll be great. So Jane, it just thinks I'm going to go. It's going to be a fresh start. It's just going to be me and this woman and this kid. Mm-hmm. I'm going to hang out. I'll be a governess. Chilling. Right. Chilling. Perfect. Chilling. And that's like the first, is that, that's not like halfway through the book. I'd say it's no, maybe a third into third. the book. Yeah, about a third. Like it's quite, you've got quite a big chunk and it's kind of like the end of childhood then, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Like while she's at Lowood, she kind of goes from being this helpless child to being someone that can just, like she has agency, mm-hmm. to use a popular word. Um, she, she has a set of rules that she can follow and she knows that if she lives her life to her standards, then... she's got herself like she can always rely on herself and that's the only person she's ever been able to rely on like consistently she couldn't rely on her family Helen died Miss Temple leaves right she's just got Jane so she gets to Thornfield Hall and it turns out that Mrs Fairfax is in fact the governess not the person and that there is going to be this mysterious guy like in the house with her and this little French girl um on her way to Thornfield Hall she like skipped this bit she like helps this guy on his horse and he's got this big dog and this big horse and he falls off because he's like startled by her and um that it turns out like that's mr rochester but she doesn't know is this garbled does this make sense that makes sense they have a little meet cute on the moors yeah 
and it's like really cute it's a bit like um willoughby's introduction to marianne in sense and sensibility okay. like the weather's really bad like there's a fool there's an accident that's how they meet like she's very resourceful yeah. she's like very calm this thing's happened but she's able to help him like she gets him back on the horse and then he he goes off and then when she gets back to thornfield like it's him right and he's like waiting in the house for her and what starts to happen is that uh, over the course of like a few months, I'm guessing, mm-hmm. he he keeps everyone else pretty distant. Like Mrs. Mrs. Fairfax is lovely. Um, Adele, the little girl, is very sweet. She is from France. She doesn't speak a lot of English, but Jane speaks French, and they get on very well. And um, the little girl like loves presents and stuff, but mm-hmm. she's like good natured. Yeah. Um, and then over time, uh, Jane and Rochester start to hang out a bit in the evenings and they talk. And I would say that Mr. Rochester talks a lot more than Jane does. Yes. Like, like tell me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He, he has seen the world. He has been out a bit. And like, I think he likes her earnestness. Mm-hmm. And while she can't talk about everything, she hasn't seen a lot of stuff. Um, she's like she's quite open isn't she she's quite like she's like open-minded and she's like keen to learn and she's smart so although she isn't like hasn't experienced a lot of life like she knows she can like she can have an intellectual conversation with him which I don't think he's used to with other people right what's interesting too and when I'm thinking about Northanger Abbey and we talked a little bit about this in the last episode is um that in both of these books, they do have time to get to know each other. It's not like their eyes meet across the ballroom and then they're like instantly in love and there's like passion yeah. and angst. It's like about two couples who slowly talk and get to know one each other and just sort of fall in love that way, which yeah. is, um, I feel like, I mean, I read a, a lot of romance. It's not depicted a lot in romance. It's like very much like an instant connection. You know, it's sex, it's passion, it's, you know, something really big and bold, but this is just like two people sitting by a fireplace talking. Yeah, for sure. Which is lovely. And and then, and then we get like another resurgence of creepy shit happening. Yeah. And when it starts kicking off, it starts kicking off. So there is um, a third floor attic that you're not allowed to go near in the house. Mm-hmm. Like you never go up there, doors locked, like none of your business. Just leave it alone. Beauty and the Beast vibes. Like, yeah, you know, don't go near it. Um, and then one night, uh, Jane's like awake in bed and she can hear someone like, laughing outside of her room. So she hears the door to the third floor attic open. She hears someone come down the hall and then stand outside of her bedroom door and just laugh. Yeah. Like, that's horrible. It's <laughs> chilling. Like, he's awful. And then another time, um, so there's this woman called Grace Paul. Who like goes and sits up in the third floor. Like she's the only one that's allowed in there. And she just goes up there and like she does sewing and stuff. And she doesn't really talk to anyone. And she's a bit surly and weird looking, apparently. Mm-hmm. And so um, she's convinced that Grace Paul has just been like standing outside her bedroom door laughing. And then there's another night where she like why she can't sleep for whatever reason. And there's like smoke, right? Is that what happens? She goes yeah. out into the hallway and there's smoke coming out of Mr. Rochester's bedroom. Yeah. And she goes in and, like, the curtains on his bed have been set on fire. Mm-hmm. 
And it's like, oh, like Grace Poole has set set it on fire. And Mr. Yeah. Rochester like runs up to the third floor to go and sort Grace Poole out. And Jane's just sat there like, well, what is going on? <laughs> right. Why is this woman trying to kill him? Why is she allowed to live in this house? It's, it's nuts. Mm-hmm. And then there's this lovely bit where, so this is chapter 15. And he says, I knew, he continued, you would do me good in some way at some time. I saw it in your eyes when I first beheld you. Their expression and smile did not strike delight into my inmost heart for nothing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's one of the moments when you had like a Rochester swoon. Delight in my inmost heart. Oh, my. I think that's so lovely. But also, this this isn't the first time she's helped him. Bloody horse. That's true. When did they met? Absolutely Just like a true. man, eh? Yeah. Just like... <laughs> um, so then after that happens, she then gets news that her Aunt Reed is very sick and also her cousin John's killed himself. Oh, yeah. Bad, bad scene. Yeah. So this family that we've left behind and you're like, you're pretty sure she's never going to see them again. They rear their head and it's like, you've got to come back. Your Aunt Reed's pretty sick. Mm-hmm. Um, and she goes back and she is like, She's lovely. And her cousin's a bit, a bit rude to her. And they're like, oh, Mama's not going to want to see you. And so Jane's just like, well, you know what? She sent for me, so I'm going to go and see her now. Like, doesn't matter what you think. Yeah. She's going. So she goes up to see her aunt. And she tries to make her peace with her again, the same as she did when she was a kid. She says, like, aunt, all I've ever wanted is for you to love me. You know, like, kiss me. Uh, give me a kiss on the cheek and, like will let bygones be bygones mm-hmm. her aunt will not do it like even on her deathbed her aunt is just like you're a horrible child like yeah. i should have known you'd be a horrible adult and as a reader as well like i mean jane feels the injustice of it and as a reader you're like she isn't like she's really nice yeah like can't just give her a second chance like what is going on mm-hmm. and then it turns out her aunt's just like oh yeah by the way you have this uncle who lives in Madeira who's got loads of money and he really wants to leave it to you. But because I hate you, I didn't. I just told him you were dead. It's a real dick move. It's like so rude. Yeah. So she gives this letter to, she gives this letter to Jane. She's like, you can have this. Do what you want. Yeah. Like I told him so, you were dead, right? Like in a, in a way, the aunt's kind of like, this is like, I'm trying to do right by you. Like I've done this bad thing. Now you can fix it. Yeah. But she's still... so. She can't go. She can't go to the grave doing that because, like, that is a very obvious, like, bad thing to do to someone. Mm-hmm. But she is okay with the thought of just being horrible to Jane because of her personality being like bad yeah. as she sees it. Um, Jane does have these two female cousins, uh, who are equally horrible to her when she's a kid, but not as like physical in the way that John is. And oh, what are their names? Oh, I can't remember offhand. I can't remember either. Yeah. But so she's basically, um, she goes back and like, one of them is pretty and silly and fashionable and has nothing to say. And it's all like, this is social etiquette. And it's, I'm going to be polite to you, but I'm going to do it in such a way that it comes across as very rude. You're Mm. still not welcome. And then the other one is just this like, fanatical Christian Mm -hmm. who spends every minute of every day, like trying to do good works and like sewing clothes for the poor or like sewing altar cushions for the church or praying or you know she's at church or like every single thing she's doing is just if it's if it's not serving god like it's a waste of time right 
and then and kind of Jane falls somewhere in between that it's no that's insane that's like not a true thing at all like mm-hmm. this is a very religious book and I think Jane to a certain extent does think that your life decisions should be um you should always try and do the right thing you, sh- you shouldn't like knowingly do something that's like sinful or wrong right yeah um and she believes in god yes um but it's not as extreme as it, it's not person. it's one of the things i think i give charlotte Brennan, uh, i can't talk i give charlotte bronte a lot of credit for um because you know she is the daughter of a clergyman she is very religious but she does, you know, even at Lowood, like she, you know, she points out like the hypocrisy, with, you know, in religious men and some of these religious like fanatics, basically. Yeah. Um, the, you know, the head of Lowood school who's, you know, he's embezzling money from the school. Right. Yeah. And he's, and he's abusing these children, basically. Um, yeah. And yeah, she is talking about religion in a slightly, I would think that that would be slightly ch- shocking for the time you know, the way Definitely. that she's exposing it. Um, so yeah, I give her a lot of credit and she's still, you know, her, her character is like a nice happy medium in a way. Although happy is like not a great word to describe Jane Eyre, but you know what I mean? Like she is a, yeah. solidly in the middle. She's a very strong moral code. Um, she is religious, but no, she is not fanatic. No, she's yeah. No, she isn't. Um, and that comes that that does come up later on as well. Mm-hmm. Like this is an idea that it keeps coming back to. Um, so then, oh, so she goes to Gatehead, her aunt dies, she spends some time with her cousins and she goes and she never sees them again. And like the book, uh, Charlotte Bronte makes a point of saying to the reader, I never see them again. And like, so one of the things that I felt really interesting about like the addresses to the reader are that in these moments, like it can really focus your attention So by saying that she never sees her cousins again, she's saying like this whole stuff to do with Gateshead, this whole stuff to do with Lowood, like stop thinking about it. This isn't the mystery. There is a mystery. We know there's a mystery, but everything, everything that's happening is happening in Thornfield. Yeah. It's not happening here. And so you can just forget about it at that point. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think if she didn't say that, it's like, what's happening with the money? What's happening with, you you forget about it. Yeah, for sure. Never again. And that works because then when stuff comes up later, you're like, oh shit, I wasn't, I didn't even, yeah. So it's surprising. So she goes back to Thornfield to see Mr. Rochester, who was devastated that she was going to go away and like leave him. And she gets back and he's not actually that unhappy because he's got loads of mates over. Yeah. Or like he's away and then he comes back and he brings like a bunch of people with him. Mm-hmm. And some of, and like, this is a very like, they're wealthy, they're fashionable. Like one of them, Miss Ingram, is particularly beautiful, and Mr. Rochester is particularly taken with her, and everyone's kind of going on about them as if they're gonna get married. You know. Um she she's looking funny. He needs someone that's gonna like kind of make him a bit more sociable. Mm. Um the, the the Rochester is like he's from this very old, like well respected family in the area. Mm. So like he's good, he's good stock. And so although he's, like, older and he's perhaps not as handsome, he's, like, a good match for a young woman like Miss Ingram. Mm-hmm. Right? Exactly. And Miss Ingram and her family are just, like, fucking governesses, am I right? They hate him. <laughs> Maybe you want to beep that out. And they, uh, they're not about governesses. They think they're useless. They think they're sly. They think yeah. they, you know, just get rid. Get rid of the governess. Send your kid to school. Get rid of the governess. 
and they like they just say stuff like this in front of Jane Eyre all the time and they're just like scornful of her and they're just repeatedly trying to put her in her place yeah so then Mr Rochester is like I'm gonna go away for a few days um I'll be back you will just hang out and while he's away this gypsy woman appears and everyone's like oh we've got to go and have our fortunes told by the gypsy because she's like I'm not gonna leave until I've read everyone's fortunes and some people are a bit scared. Some people are really into it. And right before this has happened, there's a young guy called Mr. Mason. He's like, oh, I know Mr. Rochester. He just, like, turns up. Doesn't he? Yeah. He's just, like, he just appears. He's like, oh, oh Mr. Rochester's not here. And he's like, well, oh, wait, no big deal. It's fine. Yeah. So all of the women start going in to see. Um, the gypsy says, like, oh, I want to see every young woman in the house. So a couple of them go off together, like, some background characters, and they're freaked out by it. And then Miss Ingram goes in. She's like, I'm not scared. I'm going to go and get my fortune told. She goes in and she comes out and she's like really shaken by it. Mm-hmm. And they're like, she, went, it, she just says, oh, it's just silliness, isn't it? It's just silliness. But she's really affected. And then uh, the servant's going to send her away. And then they come back and they're like, well, she actually says she hasn't seen all of the young ladies. And she's referring to Jane. Right. It's like, how does she know? How does she know Jane's there? Because magic is real. That's how. <laughs> because magic is real. So then Jane goes in, and this woman's like asking her loads of like pernickety questions about like marriage and stuff, isn't she? Yeah. And it's like, and it, Jane's just like, yeah, whatever. Like I can handle it. You're just some gypsy trying to read my fortune. Mm-hmm. Guess what? It isn't. It isn't a gypsy. It's Mr. Rochester. You were in the podcast hut when you read this bit. And I just remember you being like, what? It's his hand. She recognizes his hand. I've got a quote about it somewhere. Let me scroll down in my notes to see if I can find it. See if you can find it. I've got pages and pages just You were obsessed on. with this part. I, you know, just now as you were describing it, I was thinking this would be a good thing for them to do on The Bachelor or The Bachelorette. That would be like a really funny yeah. like segment that would be really funny i mean because he is just like going in like trying to work out how these ladies feel about him it's well, such a it's I'd... such a weird move yeah this bit with like mr rochester being the gypsy is hilarious it's not just hilarious because jane's like oh that hand i recognize that hand and that ring and i recognize the face and then he pulls off this costume and he gets like stuck in the ties and he's like Oh, Jane, by the way, don't tell anyone I was the gypsy. And she's like, okay, I won't. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so good. But also, um, he's like, he was winding uh, Blanche Ingram up. Mm-hmm. Like, he's just winding her up and feeding her loads of misinformation. And it turns out that he, oh, like he, says, he says to her that he's got no money, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, so as the gypsy, the gypsy's like, oh, you're going to marry this guy, but he, he's actually got no money. As a way of, like, trying to test her. Mm-hmm to see how she's going to react and she's obviously so ruffled by it um it's kind of transparent then like oh she's she she doesn't actually have any affection for mr rochester whatsoever and that proves it for him Mm -hmm. so jane's then like oh this there's this guy outside as well called mr mason and mr rochester's like oh how was he what was he saying to people and he's like really on edge about it yeah like he can't figure out like well, we don't know why this Mr. Mason guy's freaking out. And Mr. Mr. Rochester's just like this, okay, well, we'll sort it out. And then he, he's fine with him. You know, like, they get on really well. And he's like, you can stay at the house. Like, I'll set you up in a room. But in the middle of the night, that Grace Poole woman 
at it again because there's this horrible scream. Um, and all of the guests, are like, they, they, they all get woken up by it, don't they? Mm-hmm. And then and Mr. Mason's in there and he's like, his face is torn off. Yeah. And he's like, shocked he's lost some blood. And it's just... I guess there is a little nuts. bit of like, why... Yeah, there's your gore. Yeah, so this this bit's pretty gory. And you're like, this Mr. Mason guy's going to die. And Mr. Rochester leaves. He's like, locked Grace Poole up in the corner. But like, we find that this is where we find out that Grace Poole is not doing it, don't we? Um... Is this when we find out that Grace I'm Poole... I'm trying to remember. No. no, I don't think so. No, she still thinks it's Grace Poole, doesn't she? Yeah, I think she does. So she's so Mr. Rochester's like, oh, don't worry. Like, I've locked Grace Poole up in this room. Yeah. Um, just don't open this door and you'll be fine. So she's there with Mr. Mason. He's, like, delirious. He can't believe what's happened to him. The doctor comes and then they just send Mr. Mason off. Like, he leaves before all of the guests Yeah. know that he's gone. Yeah. I think and then and so after that every, everyone else leaves. It's um Blanche is gone. It's just like Adele, Blanche, Mrs. Fairfax. Uh, sorry, Adele, um, Jane, Mrs. Fairfax and Rochester, like just mm-hmm. back to normal with the rest of the servants in the house. Grace Paul hasn't been dismissed. Like Jane cannot figure out what's going on with this Grace Paul stuff. Mm-hmm. And she's forgotten as well all about this uncle in Madeira. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. That's been swept under the rug. Now, everyone in town is like, oh, um, you're definitely, like, Mr. Rochester's definitely going to marry Miss Ingram. Like, it's a given. It's definitely 100% happening. Mm -hmm. And so Jane's like, well, I know how she feels about governesses, so I can't be around Mr. Rochester if he's married someone else. I guess I've just got to go and find another job. Mm -hmm. And then um, she and he have this chat in the garden about her going away, and he's like, you should stay. And then she says, like, well, how can I stay with you? You're going to marry Blanche. Um, and then he's like, I don't want to marry Blanche. Are you kidding? I want to marry you. And then they make out. Yeah. It's very it's romantic. Beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah. And shocking because they make out. Yeah. You don't get a lot of smooches like, in the Jane Austen, do you? That's just like, that's your even, money shot. That's at the end. Oh, it's, they don't even kiss at the end. Like, it's always implied. Yeah, it's true. It's they like, just imply it. Yeah. But there are so many moments where they're just like close together, like when she saves him from the fire and they're just like on the, on their own in his bedroom. And he's like, he's saying all of that stuff to her and you're just like, man, my heart is just racing because it's like, they're going to kiss, they're going to kiss, they're going to kiss. And they don't. And it's like, you can like, there's so much sexual tension in this book. And then, yeah, so they make out in the garden and um, Mrs. Fairfax sees it and she's like, good God. What is happening? <laughs> uh, she's like completely scandalized because she just thinks they're having an affair. They, she doesn't know that he's like proposed and that James right. accepted. Right. And the night that that happens, lightning strikes and this tree in the garden just splits in half. Yeah. So it's all very, it's all very dramatic. Yeah, it's ominous. And um, after they decide to get married, it's kind of, it's quite quick after that, isn't it? It's, mm-hmm. He wants to get you know, it done he, with pretty quickly. Uh, he wants to get it over and done with. He takes her into town. He's like, I'm going to buy all, all of this stuff. Like. I'm going to dress you up in pearls and jewels. Mm-hmm. And Jane starts doing this quite interesting thing where she says, um, I don't want you to do that. Like you might as well just dress an ape up. Uh, yeah. Like it would be more comfortable than I would be. Like yeah. you like me because I am how I am. So let me just be who I am. Yeah. And it does get a bit weird because it's kind of like, I'm like this little girl and you're this old guy and just like 
think of me like that, like your little Jane. But I don't think it's meant to be. I think it's just meant to be symbolic of her being like pure in the sense like she's not worldly in the way that um, Miss right. Ingram is. Like she's not knowing. She doesn't have any artifice. Right. Well, he does sort of um, condescend to her a little bit. You know, when he says like things like that, like my little pet or my little Jane or, you know, like that sort of thing. Um, I think it's like, like Michael Fassbender. I like the kind of the way that he performed it in the adaptation where it is almost joking or it's sarcastic. It's a little, you know, but that's a, I think that's a kind of a modern reading, but yeah, I I think you're right. I I think he does. I do think that he thinks that she's pure. Yeah. And so actually I never explained. So Adele, this girl that's uh, Mr. Rochester's ward is possibly his kid he doesn't think it is um there was this point when he was younger where he just like traveled around Europe just shagging people mm-hmm. and there's this one opera singer who he was seeing who um had this little girl um and then after he cut ties with her because she was flirting with someone else he um he gets sent this kid yeah and he doesn't he doesn't think Adele is his but you know he thinks that if he raises her in England with an English governess that she'll like not grow up like her mum, who's superficial, yeah. like after money, like she wasn't loyal, all of these things. And I think so it's like Jane Eyre he sees as being like moral and pure yeah. and like a good role model and these things that he hasn't seen in women in the past. Yeah. Um there's a big reveal in a minute. That like <laughs> and that that makes sense. And um Miss Farron's the opera singer you know that makes sense and then kind of like Blanche Ingram so I guess for him he just felt like this is just what women are like yeah just out for what they can get Mm -hmm. like they don't care and then he meets Jane and she does care she cares about everything very deeply Mm -hmm. she's very calm and she'll she'll help anyone you know Mm -hmm. like that's what she she's just helping everyone all the time um and so I think that's what he sees so they're gonna get married uh she doesn't want to change uh, she doesn't want to be dressed up in trinkets and lace. Uh, he does go behind her back and he orders a very expensive veil for her to wear at their wedding. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the night, guess what happens? Someone breaks into her bedroom and she thinks she's having a dream. Someone breaks into her bedroom in this dream and they look at themselves. They put on the veil that yeah. he's ordered mm-hmm. and then they look at themselves in the mirror and then they rip the veil up and then they lunge at Jane and then she faints, and then she wakes up from the yeah. dream. Except, was it a dream? Veils ripped in half on the floor, and it wasn't a dream. Yeah, fantastic bit in the book. Very scary. Yeah, I love it. Very scary. You know, I I love the scary bits. So after that's happened, sorry, I was just rereading my notes. No, you're fine. After that happens, uh, Mr. Rochester um, says to her, "Well, tonight." This, so that was the night before the night before the wedding. So the night before the wedding, he's like, you've got to sleep in Adele's room. You know she'll love that. Adele thinks you're everything. Um, but lock the door. Mm-hmm. Like, don't let anyone in. And actually, to be honest, when all of this comes out, it is insane that he hasn't made that decision before. Yeah, it really is. To just, like, have locks to doors that Grace Paul can't have because mm-hmm. she keeps getting into everything, doesn't she? Yeah. The idea is that after they're married, they're going to go on this like grand tour of Europe straight away, like straight from the church. They're not going to hang around. Mm -hmm. Uh, But just as they're about to get hitched, this Mr. Mason guy from earlier turns up and tells everyone that Mr. Rochester can't get married because it isn't Grace Paul locked in the attic. 
it's his wife, Bertha. Amazing. Yeah. Wap, wap, wap. He's got a wife locked in the attic, and Grace Poole is actually the person looking after her. Mm-hmm. They obviously can't get married at this point. They right. all go back, um, and Mr. Rochester kind of weirdly just like throws open doors and shows Bertha off to everyone. And he's like, look at this mad woman that I'm married to. And yeah, yeah, it turns out that he's married to somebody who is mentally unwell, has been locked in this little room, who's like suffers from violent tendencies, mm-hmm. uh, and is um she is uh, half creel yes now we'll talk about race in a minute yeah. but that that comes into it quite a lot um and yeah she's just this like woman that he says he was tricked into marrying doesn't love who's tried to kill him a bunch of times and if she had died which would probably be for the best he'd have been free to marry jane so why does he have to stay married to this woman right and in those days, you couldn't just divorce someone because they were mentally unwell. That which is something that people started to do later on is that you'd have your significant other institutionalized and then right. you would be allowed to divorce them. Like it was OK to do that. Right. But he couldn't. Um, so then Mr. Rochester says to Jane Eyre, why don't we just go to Europe anyway? And then we'll go somewhere far away where no one knows us. And then we can just pretend to be married. Mm-hmm. And Jane Eyre's like, that's really wrong. I'm not going to do that because that's like ungodly. And it's also a lot to drop on you. You know, you're about to get married. You find out your fiance is married to someone else and they're like upstairs. I mean, it's a lot, but she is torn. I mean, she does love him and he is offering her safety and love and a position that she has never had before in her life. So yeah, it's a tempting offer. Absolutely. But my God, it's like her soul is on the line and his soul is on the line. And like, this like the stakes are so high it's not just her reputation like in Jane Eyre like this is this is everything this is the afterlife this is your like Christian duty right you know and she she's not just protecting herself like she really sees herself leaving as being a thing to protect him yeah like it's yeah very Edward Cullen isn't it I'm worried about your soul brother (laughs) right I read Twilight I was just kidding earlier. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So Jane runs off. She does it again. She disappears into the night. She takes only the plainest clothes. She doesn't take any any money other than, I think, what he owes her as wages. And even then, it's it's not enough. Right. Um, And she just gets a carriage. She just gets in a coach and uh, says, take me as far as you'll go. Drops her in the middle of nowhere. She slowly starts to starve to death because she's going from, like, door to door saying to people will you help me? I don't have anything. Can I trade this glove for some food? Mm-hmm. And they're like, obviously not. Go away and take your glove with you. <laughs> uh, she, she sleeps in a bush. Yeah. Um, she's just out for days. Like, she can't drink, can't eat. She stumbles upon this house and then she's looking through the window and she sees these two girls and she's like, ah, oh, I reckon we get on. These look really nice. Mm-hmm. But then the housekeeper, when she knocks, the housekeeper's just like, go away. You're, trying to, you're just trying to scam us. And, like, she's overheard saying to the girls, like, oh, it's just a beggar woman. But, you know, like, she'll just come to the door and ask for money. And then in a bit, like, a bunch of men will appear and they'll rob us, mm-hmm. basically, is what, you know, what she's scared of. So Jane wanders off, but then she faints again. And then their brother comes and gets her and then tucks her up in the house. Now, what's interesting about that is that she'd actually already, uh, she'd been to the brother's house, hadn't she? Mm-hmm. The parsonage. Yeah. And, like she was looking for him and he wasn't there. He was off like doing some, doing some 
Christian outreach yeah. uh, in the community. And then she, by chance, stumbles upon his, this like family home mm-hmm. where the sisters are staying. So she wakes up and the housekeeper's like kind of very wary of her and kind of wants to feed her up and send her on her way. But the, the sister's very fond of her and she, she kind of settles in very quickly. She helps out around the house. Um, she won't tell them who she is or where she's come from. She asks them not to ask her and not to dig into it. Right. Uh, the two sisters are governesses. Jane finds out from them that they were all kind of relying on this inheritance from their uncle so that the girls could stop working. But he's gone and died and left his money to like some un- unknown relative. Ooh, mysterious. And they're all getting on really well. Jane's really happy. She doesn't just want to sit there and like not pay her way. So she asks St. John, the brother, to help her get a job. And he sorts her out with this job teaching at a little school in the area. Mm-hmm. And he says to her, like, I think this is going to be too boring for you because you're obviously like very well educated and you've got a fair mind. But she's just like, this is what I want. Like, I just want to be self-sufficient. I don't want to be a burden. I just, like, I want to forget what's happened to me. Right. St. John is also in love with this woman in town, like the richest guy in town's daughter. And Jane sees that a lot. And he can see, like, the way the two look at each other. And um, she kind of wonders why St. John, like, won't get with her. Mm-hmm. Like, why, why they won't be together. And then he's like, well... Like, I can't offer anything, can I? Like, what do I have? Also, St. John, brilliant name. Is it St. John or is it St. John? Why would it be St. John? I don't know. People have said that that's the way it's pronounced. It's crazy. Who said that? Here, the internet. <laughs> it's just S-T, it's just St. And then John I is a separate know. word. I know. In in um in Jane Eyre. That's how they, that's how they do it. Let's what? see why. Let's see why. Let's see. Oh Here, sorry, gosh. I was just pulling. I was just pulling it up. Um, as a first name, Saint John is usually pronounced Sinjin, but as a last name, it can be it can be pronounced as Saint John. I have always been curious about this, especially when watching televised versions of Jane Eyre, where Saint John is pronounced as Sinjin. Is there a special rule, reason, or historical cultural context behind this? Um, uh, some people say the pronunciation changed in terms of simplification and reduction in the Middle Ages or early modern period. Um, wow. It could be pronounced as Sinjin when the surname with the surname too, but um, I guess you really you can go either way. You can go either way. Okay. Well, I'm going to Saint John. Okay, that's cool. <laughs> that's cool. I have. I that's mean, how I read it the whole time. I um, read it that way as well, and then. Um, yeah, I think it was one of the adaptations I was watching, and I was just like, they're saying St. John, really funny. <laughs> but there you go. We've, we've there you learned go. something. We've learned something today. We have learned something. So um, the sisters have gone off, and they're like off teaching while she's teaching at this little school. Mm-hmm. And while they're away, St. John, St. John, um, does like some nosing, and he finds out that she is actually their relative that's inherited all of the money convenient very convenient like it does it feels kind of very coinky dinky mm-hmm. like this point like it's too it does it does 
like she sees this light on in the moor she goes to the house she gets on really well with these people it turns out they're her relatives yeah and they're like oh we're really happy that you've got all this money and she's like well i'm really happy too but i'm only happy if we can share it as equal splits so she's inherited twenty thousand pounds which is huge money like humongous she's she's not just like a little bit wealthy she's like very wealthy Mm -hmm. um but she turns around and says well you know what i want five five thousand and then you can have five thousand and then diana and mary can have five thousand and five thousand is good five thousand is independent wealth you don't have to work anymore Mm -hmm. uh five thousand will put the girls in a better position to secure a good match yeah they won't have to be governesses they can all live together in this family home because it was their uncle's home, the one that's died. Mm-hmm. Um, and for St. John, £5,000 is enough independent wealth that he is now an eligible match for that girl that yeah. he was in love with. But guess what? He can't marry her because he wants to be a missionary. Yeah. So he, everything this guy does. Also, it's worth saying, St. John is like, meant to be this beautiful man like very handsome like a Mm. statue whereas mr rochester is meant to be like not handsome man like ugly like not attractive but he's alive and i think the comparison is always like mr rochester is almost like animal like Mm -hmm. but he's living whereas saint john is beautiful he's like an ice sculpture like he's very cold he's like stone Mm mm-hmm so they're all hanging out, you know, uh, everyone's kind of happy. St. John is saying to her, like, well, I have to learn this language because I'm going away. What better way to learn than for me to teach it to you? So you have to come and learn how to do this language as well. And then you kind of start to notice that St. John maybe doesn't think about Jane the way she thinks about him. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of grooming her to be his missionary wife. Right. And then he proposes one day he's just like tell you what i'm gonna go and be a missionary you should come with me we'd be perfect partners you can help me spread the good word do the good jobs like we'll go we'll take god to the savages right and it'll be great and she says yeah i'll come with you but i'll come with you as your sister Mm -hmm. like i love you the way diana and mary love you and you love me the way you love diana and mary like we're related i don't want to marry you and he basically turns around to her and is like you can only come like first of all like logistical reasons who's going to believe us if we go around traveling together saying that we're brother and sister no one's going to believe it they're going to think something dodgy is going on Mm. secondly it's your godly duty to be my wife and he means like all of it it's like we're going to have sex as well right which again shocking because he's just like explicitly talking about the fact that they're going to have to have sex if they're married right she's like i can't marry you I don't love you. It mm. would be ungodly of me to marry someone that I wasn't in love with and I'm going to die. Like, not only am I going to die physically because I'm like, I'm very small, I'm not very strong, you're going to take me to a climate that I'm probably not going to adjust to, so I'll die of that. But then, like, her soul, like, would be crushed. Right. There's another difference between St. John and Mr. Rochester in that. Jane Eyre can say whatever she wants to Mr. Rochester. And even if he thinks it's a bit funny or a bit corny, like she can say it and he doesn't, he doesn't shut her up. Like Mr. Rochester allows Jane to say anything. Whereas around St. John, he finds like incessant talking or laughing or kind of 
getting carried away, he sees that as like being less worthy. Yeah. And so to make sure that St. John doesn't think badly of her, Jane Eyre suppresses herself. She doesn't laugh when she wants to laugh. She doesn't sing when, you know, she doesn't say everything that's on her mind. And so she just knows that after a while, she would just eventually fade away. Right. She'd stop being a person. Um, so we're getting close to the end. And so she kind of says to God at that point, um, give me a sign. Like, should I marry him or should I not marry him? Mm-hmm. What should I do? Because she's like, she's she's about to give in. Like, St. John is just, he's been horrible to her for weeks when she said that she wouldn't go as his wife, but as his sister. And he's like, look, I'm giving you one more chance. And then she thinks she hears something. What is it? Does she hear someone calling her name? She like, does. where she are does. you? Where are she you, does. Jane? Where are you? Oh, yeah. She's like, holy shit, I've got to go. I think that was Rochester. And, like, she's not near enough that it's him, like, where she is calling her name. It's like, mm-hmm. it's the supernatural thing that's happening. Right. So she goes back to Thornfield. She says to St. John, like, I've got to go and do something, and then I'll give you my answer when I return. She goes back to Thornfield, and she discovers that the building is burned down. It's completely gone. And she's very upset. So she goes back into the town and she's like, where's the master of the house? What happened? And it turns out that Grace Poole, who we now know is Bertha Mason, his wife, set the entire house on fire. And then he went up to save her. He got everyone out of the building and then he went back up to save Bertha because he's not an entirely bad person. He doesn't want her to die in a house fire. Right. But she jumps from the roof mm-hmm. and dies. That's pretty gory. Like, smashed up brains, fire. Mm -hmm. It is pretty gory. You don't see it. Well, you don't don't really experience it, but yeah. Yeah. No, because you're you're hearing this story from someone else. It's not like she's seeing it for herself. So that's a good point. But, like, in terms of an image, like, Northanger Abbey doesn't have anyone getting stabbed. for sure. Bitten, set on fire. None of that. Yeah. Um, So then she gets told that Mr. Rochester, on his way out... uh, I think he goes blind, like the ceiling collapses or something, right? Yeah. He loses a hand, he loses his sight, and he's just living in this smaller house that he owns a little way off. So then she goes there, and she kind of sneaks up on him, and he cannot believe that Jane Eyre has come back to him. Because she she ran off in the middle of the night, she didn't even note or anything. Right. And he is, he is just a, like a shell of a man. Mm-hmm. Like, he hasn't groomed himself, he hasn't looked after himself. Just sits in silence in the dark, not talking to the two servants that are there to help him. And then Jane goes back, and it's beautiful. Yeah, they get and he, together. He, he thinks that she's like a fairy. He's like, "You're not real. You're not real." She goes, "Look, it's bedtime. We should go to bed, and I'll see you in the morning." He's like, "I'm going to wake up, and you're not going to be here. Like, don't you think that this has happened to me before? Mm-hmm. But like, I've thought you were here, and you weren't." She's like, "I'm here. I'm here. Don't worry." And uh, they talk. And they get back together. He gets very jealous of um, St. John. Oh, yeah. As you would be. Very jealous. Uh, but, yeah, they like they get married and stuff. And that's the epilogue. The epilogue is that they get married. And they're wonderfully happy together. And um, although he can't regrow his hand, he does, by the time they have their first child, regain his sight. Yes. And then St. John dies. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the end of the book. He died overseas. Yeah. Yeah. That's the book. You did a beautiful job of summarizing. I feel like I did such a terrible job of doing North Anger Abbey where I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, my like, God, These people are like, whatever. Yeah. 
<laughs> but um, that is so, the book. Thought, Spoil is- all the spoilers. We just gave you the whole thing. But it's in the telling. It is in the telling. It is in the telling. And there's so much that I haven't said that you just need to go and experience. Yeah. But there absolutely. are there are still there's still a few things to say. There's a lot of things to say. And I've I've got some notes on these things as well, because I think this is a good discussion for us to have. Um go for it, Hannah. Start it off. Okay, so first I'd really like to talk about the form of the book. Okay. So I mentioned that it's not an epistolary. And I actually, like, I had to go and do some research about that because I started to read it and I was like, this is an epistolary because it kept saying, like, reader. So uh, Jane uh, addresses the reader 26 times in total mm-hmm. throughout the book. Um, but because it's not told through letters, unlike The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, which I'm reading at the moment, mm-hmm. um, it isn't an epistolary. It is fictive autobiography. Yep. So yep, did is. you know this? So when it was published, it was published as an autobiography. Like it said it underneath. Yeah, it did. So it's like an early Blair Witch project. Yeah, my first copy that I actually got of Jane Eyre, I remember it said Jane Eyre, an autobiography. I don't think that's like commonly, I think that's, I think it should, yeah, I think that's cool. Yeah, it's really cool. And it totally changed because I didn't know that until after I'd read it. And I was like, oh, that makes total sense with the way it's being told. And I really like that. It's like, this isn't this isn't just some made up story. Like this is the truth. Yeah, um, I love it. I love it when authors do that. Or this is I my, think really my truth again, which is yeah. what I love with the Brontes. This is my truth. You're not and that's getting a yeah. Theme, isn't yeah. it? It's like this is my version of events, and like people can call me a liar, and people can tell me that I'm a horrible child, and people right. can tell me that I'm unchristian. But like this is me. This is what happened. You know, and like listen. And she's so nice to the reader as well. You feel like you feel like you're Jane Eyre's friend. When she's excited, you're excited. Right. You know? Exactly. And one of one of the most famous lines is at the start of like the epilogue type chapter, right at the end. Mm-hmm. So they kind of they reunite and then the first line just says, Reader, I married him. Yeah. It's beautiful. It is really beautiful. Although um, and so Ooh, what? Well, I was say like, although we find Rochester problematic, we do. We'll get to that. Okay. So I'm still, okay. I'm still on about form. <laughs> that, am I being too boring? This is where all of this is where I put all of my quotes because I didn't okay. want to like litter my retelling. Okay. So the bit where she's talking about the cousins is mm-hmm. really cool. So like we said, she goes back to Gateshead to visit her aunt and to make peace. Um, and then right at the end, she says as I shall not have occasion to refer either to her or her sister again, I may as well mention here that Georgiana made an advantageous match with a wealthy, worn-out man of fashion and that Eliza actually took the veil and is at this day superior of the uh, convent where she passed the period of her novitate and which she endowed her fortune. Yeah. It's so cool. It's like at the the end of films where they're like, the little bit of text comes up at the bottom. Yeah. And, like, tell us what that person's doing. Mm-hmm. But Charlotte Bronte's like, I ain't waiting till the end. I'm going to tell you now. <laughs> this is what happened. These bitches are annoying. <laughs> I love that. That is fantastic. Yeah, just... Now, imagine, if you will, listening, mm-hmm. imagine Pride and Prejudice written from the point of view of Elizabeth Bennet to the point that she was talking to you directly mm-hmm. and was like 
and you could identify the moments that she was falling in with Mr. Darcy. Yeah. In the Mr. Darcy episode, I talk about like how it's kind of harder for modern day readers to pinpoint when she falls in love. And so we say, oh, it's because he's rich or it's because of this. You can't do that in Jane Eyre because Mm -hmm. she tells you personally. Um, So there's this really lovely bit of dialogue where it says, I've told you, reader, that I had learned to love Mr. Rochester. I could not unlove him now merely because I find that he had ceased to notice me. Uh And then... Uh, reader I forgave him at the moment and on the spot there was such unchanged love in his whole look and mean I forgave him all yet not in words not outwardly only at my heart's core yeah it's like Mr Rochester doesn't know that she's forgiven him right and like this this is like that that line is from when she finds out that he's got a wife locked in the attic right I I think I've got an insane wife in the attic and she's like well I do forgive you, but I'm going to keep that to myself for now. I um I do love that. And I think that I, I'm sure that someone has written like a Jane Austen fanfic or sequel or adaptation or whatever from the viewpoint of Lizzie Bennett, because there is so much of it. Um, if there has been one and you guys know of one, like, please tweet at us and let us know. But um, I know last episode we pitched my modern Northanger Abbey adaptation. <laughs> we could definitely... um. We could definitely go this route with Pride and Prejudice as well. I would love, that would be great. I I do, um, I would love to hear it from Lizzie. Yeah. It'd be probably. I would like to hear it from Jane Austen from the point of view of Lizzie. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It would be a better book. (laughs) (laughs) But I just, I thought it was interesting, like, just how relationships grow and relationships change. And because of the way that Jane, Jane Eyre is presented, you kind of get all of that information very quickly and like very yeah. easily. Um, it's doing, it is doing the same thing as Jane Austen in the sense that Jane Austen has protagonists and I say every time, but like when, especially in Emma, but like when she learns a new piece of information, you as a reader are learning it for the first time, mm-hmm. except in Jane Eyre, I think there's a point where she's like, she's had a thought about Grace Poole or something. And she's like, Reader, I was waiting for Mr. Rochester, but I'll just tell you what I discovered when I tell... Like, you'll find out what I discovered when I tell Mr. Rochester. Yeah. Because she knows she's going to report that conversation, so she's not going to give you the information until she's telling you about that bit. Yeah. So it's like, hold on, I am going to tell you, Mm -hmm. but just not yet. I thought that was really cool. That's very cool. Um, And Bronte plays with that later on, too, in Valette, too. Like, there's information, I'm holding it back for right now. And yeah. that's interesting. And you're like, why? Wait, it, that builds mystery. Keeps you turning the page. And I think this is so, like, yeah, Rochester, problematic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there's, but, like, there is a lot that he says and does. Like, so <laughs> I remember saying to Laurie, and I was just in the car, I really struggled to read. There's this whole section where he's saying, like, this is me. Like, I went off and I... Was like shagging around. He has his villain's monologue when he just like unloads on her like all of the things. And he's just like, women are shit. Basically, he's like, I hate women. Like, not you, you're different, Mm -hmm. but they're all like boring or stupid or obsessed with fashion or money or like uneducated. Mm -hmm. But then there is this point where um, Jane feels comfortable enough around Rochester 
that she can say to him, equal as we are. Like Jane doesn't see herself as being lower than Mr. Rochester. So I actually think that's why it's like you can stomach it. Because if he was saying all of that and then Jane was believed, like believed him or thought, yeah, like I am inconsequential. I am stupid. Like she doesn't, she's like, we're equal. You can't just, you can't just disregard me. Like, I have an opinion. I'm going to stick by it. And you've got, you've got to listen to that. Yeah. Pretty radical too. Yeah. I think for the time, that's a great, that's a great part of the book. Um, yeah. Rochester, I go back and forth on how I feel about him. Um, because there are definitely times that, um, I'm glad, like, I think maybe on my second reading, like I was like happy that they got together and I really felt the joy of them being together. Um, when you talk to people about Rochester, you get a lot of the same, like, well, you know, Jane only felt good enough for him once he was like, his wife was dead and he was mangled and his eyesight was gone and blah, you know, like, they're like, that's when she was like, finally, like, I feel good enough to be with you. But that's not no, true. No, she was going to marry him. She was going to marry him. Yeah. I'm like, that's not true. People do say she that a lot. him because he had a living wife locked yeah. in the attic. It was illegal. <laughs> it's true um so she felt good enough she felt like the stakes were too high like it's not just the stakes of reputation the stakes are the eternal souls like that's how jane sees it she can't be with him in a cottage in france as his mistress because not only is that like immoral but also mr rochester would grow bored of her like he's just spent 10 pages telling us about how he finds women who would do stuff like that that irritating and boring and Jane's like yeah no you're right I shouldn't do that because then you'll just despise me like you've despised every other woman you've ever met and it's also degrading to her and she's a woman that refuses to be put down I mean this is like from the start of the novel it's like with her and her cousin like she is going to defend herself she doesn't care if she's gonna punch someone in the face and be locked up she would rather leave she would rather live life on her own terms and have this relationship on her own terms than do than be than conform and um i think the last time i read this book and this kind of the things i've been thinking about a lot with jane Eyre recently is a book is is how this book is about conforming Mm -hmm. and um so this is me like putting my modern like reader hat on and reading this book okay when i think about it i think about being locked in the red room okay and then i think about bertha and the reason why jane is locked in the red room is because she refuses to behave the way that her family wants her to behave they want her to be a quiet like meek grateful ward grateful like underlying grateful they just want like she can't do anything. She can't assume that she should have any of this stuff. It's because yes. she's been given it. Yeah. It's not that she is a brat. It's just that Jane Eyre is a person that wants... Jane Eyre is someone that wants what's fair in life. Like, she wants her share of the pie. And yeah. they're like, no, like, you need to be grateful. You need to be quiet. You need to, like, know your place. And they lock her in that room. The same thing with Bertha, you know, Granted, there are there are circumstances we're going to kind of get into a little bit more. But Bertha is a woman that cannot conform to the standard that uh, Rochester, you know, he needs her to be this this traditional wife. She cannot do it. She's physically unable to do it. And so then she is locked and put away. Yeah. Um, 
Jean... Well, he also, like, he suggests that she chooses to be an alcoholic. Yeah, he does. He's like, oh, her mom was nuts and her mom was drunk. And unfortunately, she went and followed in the footsteps of her parents. It's right, like, you can't, right. You can't choose to be an alcoholic. Like, Right, you don't choose to, this, you know, mental illness. No. Um, so but that, like, yeah, a I, very modern reading. Because I'm sure they weren't having this conversation. No, they weren't. And it, it, this is, again, yeah, it's totally mo- totally modern take on this. Um, I think that moment when... Jane um, sees the situation with Bertha when she sees Bertha in the room, when he reveals her to him, uh, to Jane after the church. Um, I don't know. I just feel like kind of comparing those two locked room situations, the red room and the attic together and Jane seeing like, this can be your future if you don't conform to this traditional role. Like if you are not the person I want you to be, if you are not the wife I want you to be like, this is, could be your future. And yeah her leaving so like there's been times i've read this book and i've been like you should leave you should see this you should leave and just live life on your own terms and that would be Mm -hmm. a very strong statement you know as a book um i think again it's a modern statement yeah and um yeah so i find i think that that would be really interesting tenant of wildfell hall which is uh the point i'm at is what they're saying yeah like this woman's run away from something in that but me, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, we'll have a whole episode on that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I just feel like it's kind of a, a stronger statement if the book is about, you know, choosing to be free, choosing, you know, not to conform, you know, kind of like exposing what men and society will do to you if you, you know, choose to hold on to yourself and be true to yourself versus like conforming to their standards. Um, however, however, that is a modern reading of that text. And no, however, however, St. John. So we think that Mr. Rochester, because he's got Bertha locked in the attic, I think this, I think it's a red herring. So Mr. Rochester is the only person in the book that Jane Eyre can be entirely honest with and entirely like, like weird and say like, I don't want these jewels. And he's like, fine. I mean, I'm going to get you the spell. But like, he likes that about her. She can say what she wants. He like, if she says to him, I'm not going to live with you as your wife in the south of France, like he's gutted and he's heartbroken, but he didn't kidnap her and take her to the south of France. Right, right. St. John, the godly man, the handsome man, the man who doesn't have a wife locked up in the attic, completely suppresses her. Yes. And despite forgiveness being one of the things that you're meant to be taught as a Christian, he cannot, he cannot forgive the fact that she did not choose to go and be his missionary wife. Yeah. Everything he does suppresses and, and subdues her on yes. every level. And You're absolutely says, right. I love you, but I love you as a sister loves a brother. He cannot accept it. Yes. You're absolutely right. Um, so yeah, I think that, um, yeah, I mean, I also think that St. John too, like what he's offering her is another prison, you know, <laughs> no yeah. one, no one's yeah. offering her anything that is appealing that actually works for her. I mean, the thing is, like, she well, gets the money. Chester wants her to be his equal. Well, yeah, but he's offering her at that point. He's offering her a cottage in France, right? That's all yeah. he can give her. Um, yeah, it's really, yeah. it's her choice once she gets the money. Once she gets the money, she's like, now this is on my terms. Now this is what I choose to do. And she actually has the power to say, 
you know. And then she she starts to lose that because if you spend enough time being told that you're wrong, being told you're immoral, you know, like this indomitable spirit throughout this entire book within the last 20 pages comes so close to stopping believing in herself. Mm-hmm. So like St. John almost crushes it that like that little fire in her that like when she was a child, she was like, I'm not going to listen to you when you tell me I'm a bad person. I'm not going to listen to you when you put me on a chair in front of the entire school and brand me a liar. Like yeah. I'm not going to listen to you when you tell me that all governesses are bad. I'm not going to listen to you when you tell me that we can go and live in France together and it's no big deal. And then St. John just grinds her down. He grinds her down. He grinds her down until she's like, fine, you know what? Maybe I will go and live with you as your wife in a, like a country and a climate that's probably going to kill me and like where despite me not wanting to you're going to force yourself to have sex with me every night right it's horrible it's horrible and then he dies oh god i couldn't have been happier (laughs) i love that you were stoked by that let me just right so um the last bit this is the last bit of the entire book Mm -hmm. and the quote is chapter 38 the end St. John is unmarried. He will never marry now. Himself has hitherto sufficed to the toil and the toil draws near its close. His, I can't talk. (laughs) His glorious sun hastens to its setting. My master, he says, has forewarned me. Daily he announces more distinctly. Surely I come quickly and hourly I more eagerly respond. Amen. Even so, come. Lord Jesus. <laughs> what is going on? It's beautiful. It's so, it's just like, oh, by the way, he's dead. And he was like, yes, come on. And he's happy go. about it. He's in a better he's place ch- now. He's so happy. Yeah. Guess what, guys? He never married. He's dead. It's for the best. Yeah. Come on, Lord Jesus. He's yeah. like, he's like Mr. Bennett. When Mr. Bennett's like, if anyone out there wants to marry, you know, Mary or Kitty, I'm quite at my leisure. Yeah. He's like, by the way, God, if you want to come and like take my soul away, I'm quite at my leisure. <laughs> Let's do this. Um, do, you, do you want to talk about race? Yeah, I want to talk about Bertha. Yeah. I think well, it's important there's to a talk little about bit Bertha. Before Bertha, there's like this tiny bit. There's this one line where um, in reference to Mrs. Reed, mm-hmm. where John, the cousin... It says, he called his mother old girl and reviles her dark skin, which is similar to his own. So it's just like a little bit of like building up to Bertha and the Bertha reveal. This line's in the portion of the book where Jane is still a child. Mm -hmm. And it did make me, I read it and I was like, oh, it's, um, are the reads like dual heritage? Like what's going on? Right. Um, it isn't. It's, it's like a, the class thing again. Mm Mm-hmm. And just like complexion. And so it's very fashionable to have very pale skin because it meant you weren't outside working. Right. Mrs. Reed had like, uh, it, it, it wasn't like she's, she's a white person, but perhaps she's not like milky white. Right. And so he's like, look at you. Like you're not, you're, you look like a poor person basically. Right. Exactly. Because she's yeah. like slightly more tan. Um, so I did do some investigation into that. Uh, and so then when the Bertha stuff starts coming up, because before I'd done any research, it's just like the dark skin thing. And then the descriptions of Bertha, 
Like I've got a couple written down. Should oh I, should I read yeah, them? actually read them. Okay, so the first one um, is after the veil has been ripped up. So I've taken I've taken some of the text out and just kept it to the stuff that's describing her. Mm-hmm. Um, it seemed, sir, a woman, tall and large, with thick and dark hair, hanging long down her back. Presently, she took my veil from its place. She held it up, gazed at it long, and then she threw it over her own head and turned to the mirror. Fearful and ghastly to me. Oh, sir, I never saw a face like it. It was a discoloured face. It was a savage face. I wish I could forget the roll of the red eyes and the fearful blackened inflation of the liniments. Ghosts are usually pale, Jane. This, sir, was purple. The lips were swelled and dark, the brow furrowed, the black eyebrows widely raised over the bloodshot eyes. Shall I tell you what it reminded me? You may. Of the foul German spectre, the vampire. So that's the first one. So in our very first introduction to Bertha, you've got um, like fearful and ghastly, savage face, discoloured, discoloured face, blackened liniments, Mm -hmm. like red eyes, bloodshot eyes, black eyebrows. Um, And then the bit when, so after the wedding, when uh, Mr. Rochester takes them all up to the attic, um, you see Bertha for the first time as Mrs. Rochester. She's not just a spectre in the night. Mm -hmm. And the description we get is, in the deep shade, at the farther end of the room, a figure ran backwards and forwards, what it was, whether beast or human being, one could not at first sight tell. It groveled, seemingly on all fours. It snatched and growled like some strange wild animal, but it was covered with clothing and a quantity of dark, grizzled hair, wild as a mane, hid its face, uh, hid its head and face. So, uh, yeah. So, okay. Um, this was edited out of an early podcast, but we had talked about the way Bertha was treated um a little bit briefly before um and here are my thoughts on that and the description and then i'll kind of we can talk about race a little bit as well um charlotte bronte is sort of like she's bringing in these gothic elements into jane Eyre, right and then she's also bringing in these like fairy tale elements as well so Mm -hmm. she has to um vilify bertha to sort of make i think to make rochester a more sympathetic character so that you're actually on board with them getting married at the end so these descriptions of bertha are monstrous right like she's a monster she's a monster in the attic she's a vampire like she's not a person she has to dehumanize her because otherwise it's such a horror like it's like oh my god such a horrible concept it's such a horrible concept if jane saw bertha in the attic and it looked like another version of her then i think that would go back to what i was saying earlier about this like text being this like powerful like piece on like the dangers of conformity right because can you imagine if she went up into the attic and she saw a woman that looked like her but was like malnourished and wild hair and bloodshot eyes she would run and she would run forever and she would never come back yeah um and then that then that's an interesting book in its own right but that's not what what charlotte bronte is trying to do she is trying to write a fairy tale a gothic fairy tale. So she has to absolutely dehumanize Bertha. Now, in mo- in like in our time, this is problematic. Yeah. Um then I'm sure it, well, I mean obviously the book was well received. It's a it's a classic. People loved it. They thought it was fantastic. But also so 
but it isn't it isn't just problematic um it's like you read it it's hard you read it and I was like wait did is is she like of color like is she a person of color yeah and I was trying to figure that out as well because so um she's referred to as being uh her mother was a creole so birth mm-hmm. is half creole um you know that she's from um like a colony in Jamaica right but um like when you like look at the definition of creole when you try and get into it that way like that that isn't in reference to anyone's like skin color or anything like that her mum her mum could have been white like exactly and, yeah and so you read it and it's like shitting hell like this is this is so complicated there's nothing good about it no no um yeah with creole i, I would assume that like bertha is like uh, i don't know there's probably like portuguese and french like it could i'm sure it's like maybe like a spanish influence and thinking mm-hmm. that's what where she's going with this it's funny because as an american when i read creole like my mind immediately goes to louisiana and actually like my own background which is like creole and that is you know African and French and Spanish and just a whole well, like, melting yeah, pot. That's what I, so yeah. yeah, so I think that as a modern day reader, I went to that initially. But then yeah, when I also looked it up as well, I'm like, okay, it, not quite. You know, we're not sure. Is, um, yeah, her her not, father is definitely. Explicit, is it? it's, it's not explicit. Vague. Her father definitely is like a British aristocrat. Yeah. Um. This whole thing about, like, Rochester being tricked, too. Like, this... Oh, man. It just... When he says that, when he talks about... Yeah, like, I was tricked into marrying this girl. I hate it. It's it's horrible. Any time Rochester's like, oh, yeah, I I was like, I did this bad thing. But, like, this is why. And he's like, he has a wine. He's like, the reason I was horrible when I went around Europe shagging loads of people is because of this. And the reason I've got some bird locked up in the attic is because of this. And it's just like, take some goddamn responsibility yeah. for what you have inflicted on people. Yeah, absolutely. Like, and, like, he does say, like, I think, doesn't he say uh, what she drank was moderated? Like, she's in control. She's in, like, a secure environment. And so thinking about people, like, like, oh, even my own stuff with, like, mental health, like, routine, like, being taken away from a place you know, being taken yeah. out of care of people who know your behaviours and your, right. like, what triggers uh, will like set you off into a tailspin like do you feel secure all of those things you're taking someone away from like this their entire world and taking them to this weird house and like in England and yeah like yeah there's gonna there's gonna be uh he treat he treats Bertha ho- horrendously like he does losing I'm, I'm sorry but I don't like by the end of the book there's this whole thing of like he's atoned he lost his sight he lost his hand but he gets Jane and he gets his sight back. Like, what? Yeah. How, he how gets, he, he gets how Jane, he, he gets money. He, yeah, he, gets, he wins. Yeah. But she's dead. Yeah. At the end of the book. Yeah. And she takes her own way out, too. Like, that's the thing about Bertha. I mean, I got to give her credit. She's like, I am not doing this anymore. I am setting this house on fire and getting the fuck out. Yeah. She's like, no, if I'm, if I'm going to go, I'm taking you as well. Yeah. I don't blame her. Um... I think that we should for the podcast, because I think we could have so many, like just the longest discussion about Bertha. And I think we should continue it. I think we should both read um, Wide Sargasso Sea. Yes. Which is the prequel. Yeah. And I think we'll actually read that and have a very in-depth discussion about race and about the Bertha Rochester relationship and, um, you know, see, see where that goes. But um, yeah, 
yeah, it's sort of, it's fascinating. Again, this is why this book is so good, though. Like, uh, that's something I never thought about when I read it in high school. Yeah. That's something that never came up for me. Um, And then, you know, the second time I read it, I was, like, really on board for their relationship. And then, like, the third or fourth time I read it, I'm like, hey, wait a minute. What? Okay, what's going on here? I really started to finally analyze this book. And um, that's what the Brontes do so well. It's like they kind of keep you coming back. And again, just like with Wuthering Heights, this is Jane Eyre also telling you the story. Like, do we know if Jane maybe has some guilt about taking this woman's husband? Do you know what I mean? Like, she has to really vilify her as well. Yeah. And she's the one writing the story. We don't have a narrator telling you what's going on. So could be. Yeah, that's very true. Just throwing that out there. So, yeah. But um, Bertha, to be continued. And guys, read Wide Sargasso Sea. And we can all sort of talk about it. I actually think that might be a good point to to finish this week. I think so, too. So, um, Hannah, where can our listeners find us on the internet? You can find us on the line at Bonnets at Dawn on Instagram and Twitter. Yes. Uh, check those out, guys. Um, we're about to, you know, go on the road with the podcast and I'm sure we're going to be posting a lot of really fun pictures and cute little updates. If it's anything to go by the last selfie that you put on the Instagram, I'm going to look really grumpy and unapproachable (laughs) in it. (laughs) Which which, like, given my disdain for anything that you enjoy on the podcast as well, like I can be nice guys. Maybe we like the same things. I don't know. We would have taken more selfies that night, but I think that like, remember that person like as soon as we started taking that selfie like someone from across the restaurant was like selfie that was the barmaid was it oh god and then i was like oh i felt like ashamed yeah so i just took (laughs) so i just took one and then i was done oh yeah we'll we'll do some fun updates though it'll be good there'll be some tiny books yeah okay all right guys see you later guys for uh joining us we will talk Bye.